0: Well, it's so good to be God's people together, amen? Amen. Last week, we looked at one of the uh, primary Christian practices of baptism, and we talked about how it was the birthday party. This evening, we're going to talk about communion, which is the family reunion, or the family dinner, if you'd like. But before we get into it, before we observe it, practice it, I want to tell you about a story from New Testament scholar and professor, a man named Ben Witherington III, which is about the fanciest name I could ever imagine. But I didn't make up his name, and I don't think he made up this story. He was talking about a friend of his who was a megachurch pastor at one of the more casual, seeker-sensitive, I don't know if you're familiar with that term or not, but it's just more of a relaxed, you know, come as you are, like we just sang about. But he was a megachurch pastor in this casual, seeker-sensitive church. And as you might see tonight, we're trying to do something different. Well, they did too. They thought, you know what? Let's be real casual, even when it comes to communion. So the volunteer team made a huge batch of Kool-Aid, which probably sets some of you, yep, yep, feel a certain kind of way. But I couldn't think of any other way to say it until the way it just came out. They made a lot of Kool-Aid. And then they prepared some snack crackers. So think like Cheez-Its or Ritz or Goldfish. Because they wanted to just kind of do something different. And because they were seeker sensitive, they invited every single person who was there present to participate. And so in the middle of his sermon, in the middle of the service... They all drank some Kool-Aid, and they all ate their snack crackers. Then they carried on with the rest of the sermon. They sang a song. And then as the service ended and the people were making their way back to the foyer in the parking lot, a first-time guest found that senior pastor, Ben Witherington III's friend, and said, I'm a first-time guest. I've never been to a church like this. It was so casual and welcoming, but let me tell you, you know what my favorite part was? And the minister said, what's that? And she said, I liked that you stopped what you were doing, and we all had snacks in the middle. That was nice. And then Ben Witherington III said his friend had this horrific flash of a thought come through his mind. He heard the voice of Jesus saying, this is my snack that is given for you. And it was only after all of that that he realized, maybe this is more than a snack. I was thinking about it in our own church context, because when 2020 hit, and we were doing mostly virtual and then outdoor, but when we finally started gathering back, We had to address how we did communion because do you recall for years we'd have a couple people down here uh, with a tray of bread and then two cups, one with grape juice and one with wine, with apologies to Freeman Heights Baptist Church, we love you. We had a little bit of wine in here and then someone would come and tear a piece most of the time and then dip it in one of these and receive it as they went. Well, we had to reshuffle the deck and we didn't do Kool-Aid and goldfish, but we got those nifty little packs. And the reason I was thinking about our own experience is because when we got those packs, there was a church member who we all love very much, who's well known in our community. Let's just for uh, anonymity's sake, uh, say that this person is very sweet. So let those with ears to hear, hear. And this person said so often how much. That he disliked these wafers that Pastor Bud said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to grab one of these things. I'm going to open up that little film and I'm going to put a square of cinnamon toast crunch in there. I'm going to tape it back so that Mark Sweet, excuse me, excuse me, this anonymous person could find that one and stop cornering us every week about this gross little wafer. I think we can agree at least before we begin that it's more than a wafer and a couple ounces of juice. It's more than a snack. But in our tradition, it's less than some of the kind of somber, funerary feeling, kinds of almost mystical, magical. We're somewhere in between, and we got to wonder, well, if it's more than a snack... What is the Lord's Supper? We're doing it every week. Maybe some of you have grown up in faith traditions where they call it the Eucharist. Well, tonight we're talking about the word communion. We're all talking about the same thing, but we're going to be approaching it from three different perspectives. And those three perspectives are this. Communion is a remix of remembering. I'll explain that in a moment, but it has a lot to do with what Jason just read a moment ago. We're also going to take this approach of a correction for a clicky party. Is clicky a word? I'm making it a word. And then third, we're going to see briefly, just briefly at the end, a dine and dash encounter. So the remix we'll look at first, and that's some context of what the historical roots are of this family meal. We're going to spend most of our time looking at a correction for a clicky party in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You might want to turn there now. We're going to spend the majority of our time there. And you're going to notice a familiar paragraph sandwiched in between a pretty rough and hardcore teaching from Paul. And then finally, like I said, we're going to end with a brief story from the Gospels. But all of these three perspectives, stories, ideas are to try to get at that question. If it's more than a snack, what exactly is it that we're doing together? As you're turning to 1 Corinthians 11, let me remind you of what I told you last week. Baptism and communion are the Christian physical practices water is physical bread and juice is physical and they're things that we practice and do and engage with together so to a billion other christians in different ways but with the same spirit all across the world so baptism and communion are the christian physical practices of spiritual realities Last week, we talked about the picture of baptism as our union with Christ, pictured in how we were united with him in death to our old self and sin and our old way, and were raised together with him to walk in newness of life. They are the disciples' family traditions. Baptism as an initiation right into the family, and communion, as we'll see in a moment, the family reunion, the family supper. But we take what is tangible and finite to help us connect to what is spiritual and infinite, this is what we do in so many places of our culture and humanity. We love these kinds of totems and tokens and ceremonies and rituals that give a sort of gravity that we're, we know and we intuit, but it helps get there closer and easier. Sometimes there are shortcuts to get into those real, serious, base notes that undergird life. Even in ways and places that we can't fully see, these practices help us get a little bit of our arms around it. Baptism, then, is an initiation rite. Do you know what I mean? If you don't, I encourage you to go back and look or listen at the message last week. But it's that initiation rite that pictures the change of status. You were born anew into God's kingdom, and baptism is the birthday party. We don't have a birthday party without someone being born, and someone's born when they say that Jesus is Lord and they give their life to follow him. And so when that happens, and it's happened recently in our church, we gather around this newborn babe that we've been discipling and walking with, and we celebrate that they've said yes to Jesus, and then we dunk them as a picture that they are adopted into God's family and a brother and sister in the kingdom. It's an initiation rite, a change of status from death to life, from a new allegiance to the king and a kingdom. It creates a family through birth. Communion, then, is an affirmation. If you looked up affirmation in the dictionary, it is a declaration of something true, it's affirming something true. It's an affirmation ceremony that pictures or affirms the reality of our oneness with Christ and his body, the church. It sustains a family through reunion. The reason I have re-highlighted or set off there is because communion is the place where we kind of become a living Uh, witness to Jesus' teaching that if you're coming to the altar, if you're coming to the table, and you remember that you've really, really, really blown it with somebody in your family, in your circle of the believer community, man, pause real quick and go make that right. It's so vital. In Paul's teaching in uh, the Ephesian letter, Paul says, be eager to maintain the bonds of peace, to maintain the unity that we have in the spirit. Understand that unity is already a given when we're in the family. We're all filled with the same spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, but it requires maintenance to make sure that we're not stretching those bonds to a breaking point. Does that make sense? We're united already Your family unit is united in some sense of bloodline. But it's not a given that that stuff won't stretch or bend or break. So communion is the family meal. That's a union, a reunion. And who's it for? Well, in our church, we say family members, those that have been born and said yes to Jesus, who are ready to remember. We like baptism as uh, that initiation, right, that kind of really marks it off, that says this person has gone through the waters. This person has, is signifying their unity with Jesus and they're a child of God. And so we like that as a marker, but I'm not really policing or bodyguarding this table. But if Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, the idea is that anyone who's partaking has some context and continuity already and familiarity with Jesus. It doesn't mean you have to be a member of this church because the church is so much bigger than our little outpost that's just a few years old here in Garland, Texas in a shared building. The church is so big and so wonderful and it has many different diverse expressions. So we come ready to remember. And the other reason we do it so often is because there's other teaching that says, hey, do this as often as you're together. This is like one of the foundational things we do. We don't baptize somebody every week, but we certainly do this every week as often as we can. A lot of times people will say, well, if you just do it every week, doesn't it get stale? Doesn't it get old? And I say, it can be, just like reading your Bible every morning or prayer. Sometimes you don't feel it. Sometimes it can get stale. But there's something about showing up and having another opportunity to come back to your center, to come back to a place of remembrance. And that's where we begin our brief run through as a long introduction to actually practice it together. That first thing we're talking about is a remix of remembering that word remember is crucial the word remember is crucial in Luke's gospel he's the only one that records that phrase that Paul will pick up on later and that is do this in what remembrance of me Luke chapter 22 verses 19 to 20 Jason read Mark earlier, but here's the words of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And he took the bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke it. And then he gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this, what? In remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. I want to tell you, it's not on the slide, so I really want you to... Go there with me to tune in. I want you to take this as maybe your primary invitation tonight. If you don't hear a lot of the rest of the stuff and the context and all that, that's okay. I really want to, you to take this and keep it in your back pocket. Here's what I mean, and I think what Jesus means when he says to do this in remembrance. You ready? To do this in remembrance is to cherish and hold in your mind and heart. To do this in remembrance is to cherish and hold in your mind and heart. It's not just a funeral meal in memory of, it's more than that. There's a present tense moment where you bring your mind and your heart and your soul and then even your physical body as you taste bread and taste juice and you say, I don't want it to be another ritual. I don't want to be just a little add-on at the end of our worship service. I want to come to a place of attentiveness to meet Christ, not just as a teacher who died 2,000 years ago, but as someone who is inhabiting this place and space and is in some mysterious way hosting me to come just like we sang about come and find peace, come and find forgiveness, then literally taste it because this is a physical practice that's connecting you to a spiritual reality. This is why every single week, I may not read the verses from Corinthians or the Gospels, but I say almost every week, come to a place of remembrance. When you've come to a place of remembrance, take the bread. When you've come to a place of remembrance, take that tiny little sip of juice because the life is not itself in that little wafer or snack cracker or cinnamon toast crunch square. The life, the presence is in a soul at attention to the one who says, come, take, eat. As a kid, I grew up In the Episcopal church, they practice it differently. I can hardly imagine it now, but my parents would walk down with tiny little Adam. I'd be wearing suspenders, and it was a thing that I wore crazy hats all the time. I would wear Tupperware if I was at my grandparents' and I didn't have a hat. I would literally put on a Tupperware bucket, and these crazy people would let me. And I would be in a bow tie and suspenders and a Tupperware on my head, and I would kneel down at the altar, and I can still smell the way the concrete floors and the old pews and the incense and the candles smelt, and I can still taste. Can you believe this, dude? I was this big, and I'd sip wine at church every single week. What do you think, bro? You want us to bring back them cups and get some wine and juice going? I was four years old, and I can't remember much of anything from four years ago, but I can distinctly remember the taste, the smell, and the way it felt on my knees to kneel down at the altar. There is something sensory, there is something holistic. And this is what we're talking about when we're remembering. We're bringing our whole self. We're tasting it. We're remembering. Jesus says another crucial thing in remembrance of me. This is fascinating because this is the remix part. The context of this meal was not the Lord's Supper. Jesus didn't send out an Evite and says, come to the Last Supper It's actually going to be called the Lord's Supper or communion. It's going to be lit. Do people say lit? He didn't invite them and say, this is going to be an awesome thing. They were gathering together an event that they had been celebrating and observing their whole life as Jewish men. They had a secret plan To prepare in an upper room the Passover meal. The same meal that they had had since they were like Adam. They remembered what it tasted like. The unleavened bread. The bitter herbs. They knew it because they had read about it in the scriptures. The Passover, you'll remember, is the story of rescue. Where God got his people up and out in the middle of the night to escape the death that was visited upon Egypt. And it set... Their way toward freedom. And so they were having this meal with Jesus. They were not thinking this is the Lord's Supper, they were saying, Oh, we're having this year's Passover. Where's Thanksgiving this week? It's at so-and-so's. Well, where's the Passover this week? It's in an upper room in Jerusalem, but we gotta lay low because people are trying to arrest Jesus. So they have their Passover feast, and listen, ever since they were a child, Peter and John and James, they would sit down, and the father would be sitting there, and literally to this day, Jews will still say something like, we were slaves in Egypt. And they would say, we needed rescue. And had God not brought us out of Egypt, we would still be Pharaoh's slaves. They're telling this story, Peter, James, and John, their dad, their uncle, sitting here at the table with the same bread their ancestors ate. But they're bringing the memory to the present moment they're remembering a saving decisive act of God okay then their dad or their uncle or their grandpa would pray the kiddush the thanksgiving prayer and Jesus takes bread passover bread gives thanks but then he says This year is different. Tonight's different. This is actually my body. And you're going to do it in remembrance of me. All of a sudden, their souls are at attention. They're they're woke up now. They're wondering what is happening here. But this is what's really important. This is not just a new Passover. They've told the story of rescue and they've brought that memory to the present moment. They've given thanks. They've eaten. And then later when Jason read it, what did they go do after? They sang a hymn, which would have been a Hallel Psalm. But this is not a new Passover. This is a new celebration reoriented around Jesus This is a new deliverance, because the next day or two, he's going to deliver them from an even greater enemy. Not Egypt, but sin, and death, and evil itself. And then he says, by the way, this is my body, this is my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice. Now they're starting to realize he's serious about dying. He's a new Passover sacrifice, What did the Passover sacrifice do? Don't get it confused with the Day of Atonement. Christians look back in the Jewish history and they conflate the two things. That's a different thing. Passover was they put blood on the doorway and said, would death and wrath pass over us? They sacrificed this thing, they smeared its blood, and they wanted death and destruction to spare them because they had put their trust in God who said, put some blood on it. It's a new Passover sacrifice and it's Jesus. And every covenant from their history was always ratified with blood. And he says, and it's gonna be mine this time. Not a bull's, not a goat's. And so when the author of Hebrews said, hey, he did one sacrifice for all time, no more sacrifices. Moses would sprinkle people with blood. This blood sealed for us a new covenant and a new family. A covenant is a relationship that's rooted in agreement, ratified in blood that we are freed and forgiven and filled with the Holy Spirit. The same new covenant that was promised to Grandpa Peter is now being ratified and brought to bear on what's about to happen in the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is not a new Passover. It's a remixed Passover. It's a reoriented Passover. A new covenant family brought through death and life by the blood of Jesus. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember that we were enslaved, that we were destined for destruction. But this blood, this cup, this body was given to the whole world so that you might find life and a new community. So, what happens when that covenant family forgets to actually, you know, be a family? And what happens when they actually forget, you know, the one they were supposed to remember? That's what happens in Corinth. So quickly, in 1 Corinthians 11, you've heard me read part of this every week. Here's the part I don't read. Let's see if you can guess why. You ready? We're about to look at now the second part, a correction for a clicky party. Let's make clicky a word. Agreed? So remember in communion, and let's make Clicky a word. All right, 1 Corinthians 11. This is why I don't read this that much. But it's still so important. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Could you imagine if we had, like, second neighborhood church, and, like, this is what we get from a letter from the person who planted our church? Yikes. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. I knew you guys. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. That's a strange phrase, and he's probably being a little bit sarcastic there. He's like, yeah, y'all are kind of jockeying for position, aren't you? So then when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. We'll talk about this. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. In other words, some of you are out there with crumbs and others of you have drank all the communion wine. Like your cousin's friend who snuck into the priest's vestry and drank that stuff before Sunday mass. You know somebody like this? I did. This is what's happening in Corinth. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Pause. You know what comes next if you're looking at it on your phone and Bible? Do you recognize it? Imagine I've just finished the sermon and Kelly's come back up to start playing quietly. And I say, for I received what... I heard and passed on to you that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, right? You hear this? Right. This is why I don't start at verse 17. But the best corrective and critique of the bad is the practice of the better. So Paul inserts this beautiful, grounding story, just like uncle, grandpa, whoever. Hey, this is our story. Remember this. But instead, here's what's going on. Here's the context. The Christian community in the earliest church would gather together for a meal. And they had a dining room, just like you and I have a dining room, maybe some of us. You got a place where you eat in your house. How big is your table? How many people can sit at your table? Shout it out. Six? Four? Eight? We got, a, we got an eight person. And we feel like we're living large. Guess what? They had tables like we did in that they couldn't fit everybody around it. But their tables looked different. It's called a triclinium. It was a horseshoe table. And so there were meals like this all over the Greco-Roman world. And what they would do is invite people that they wanted to hang out with and kind of rub elbows with. And so the host would sit at the head of the table. And as close as you sat to the host was as big a deal as you were. So the bigger the deal, the closer you were. So they're gathering for a meal and there is only room in the dining room for like nine to 12 people max. So the overflow would happen in like the atrium if they had one, like a foyer, a garden, or like the patio. So imagine now, a new Christian community forms and there's like 25 people. And so this Christian community is this radical new community with slaves and free people and rich people and poor people, the people that were healed miraculously by God. And so you've got Jews and Gentiles, different ethnicities and races. And so now all of a sudden they're coming to so-and-so's house for dinner because they got the biggest dining room. We got the best guests at getting 20 of us in there. But what happens when they walk into the dining room, they see that horseshoe and the rich host who owns the house is sitting at the head, and the next richest guy is sitting next to him. The poor folks get off work, they're an hour late, they walk into the room, and they see that the dining room is packed. So they gotta saunter out to the patio where John is over here, and they say, What's up with that? You got anything to eat? Because, nah, man, they 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 killed it. They scarfed it. All we got left is like that weird funky potato salad that Susan brought. And what's more is that in that dining room, they're doing what every other meal in the Greco-Roman world did. They were wasted. Because every meal in the Greco-Roman world, and this is how Christians adopted their worship practice. They would have the meal. And then after the meal, they would send the women out, the slaves out, the children out, so the dudes could hang out and keep drinking. But before they kept drinking, the second thing they would do is have a transition where they would lift a cup and say to Zeus, and we pour out this libation so that he may bless us with our righteous party, bruh. And then they would sing a song and they would say, see you ladies. And they would get turnt. And the third piece of the puzzle is convivia. It was where vivality and all this fun party goes. My wife is just thinking I said lit and turnt in the same sermon about the communion. They would have a meal, they would have a transition, and they would have a speech, music, or worse. So when James in Acts 15 says, hey, don't go do the pagan-style parties with idle food and drunkenness and prostitutes, the Christians are now looking a lot more like those meals. And that transition piece... Some drunk guy would say, oh yeah, to King Jesus, amen. This is what's happening in Corinth. This is what's happening. So the issue is there when he says you've dishonored God. You've dishonored communion with Christ with your exclusion and debauchery. Whatever this is, it's more than a snack, and there's a sacredness to it. You've dishonored it. You've dishonored communion with the church. Did you hear that in 1 Corinthians? Some are going hungry, and you're drunk? The poor person that you would have never let in to begin with, you let them in because I guess we're, we go to church together, Okay. You let him in, but you're not going to actually do what Jesus died for by uniting a people. You've dishonored communion with the church with your exclusion and division. I'd like to invite Amy to come up. And now she's going to start to prepare the elements. Because what Paul is getting them to see and trying to get into their bones again, is that the body, the bread, reminds us, brings us to a place of remembrance of the body that was given for the world, those people on the patio included. And what's more is that they would take a piece of bread and they would break the one body and tear it into pieces To remind the church that we are all part of the same body, though we're different pieces of the puzzle. Do you see this symbolism? Do you see how just a, you know, tertiary whatever, yeah, King Jesus, bottoms up, and then see you later. Do you see how that cheapens and dishonors and is a sacrilege The blood that gets raised and poured out brings us to this place of remembrance that is poured out for the world. This is the blood of forgiveness that we receive in our bodies to remind us that we've been passed over, that we've been spared, that we've been brought to freedom from certain death. And when you just cheapen it like this, you've missed the point And so he continues on, and this is why this imagery is so vital to what he says after he grounds them in that story. Picking back up in verse 27, he says this. So then, whoever eats that bread and drinks that cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. You've missed it. You've trivialized it. And to us, that may sound shocking and crazy because we're not exactly like a high church like many others. Our Catholic brothers and sisters honor the host. They call the the elements the host. And they put it in a special chapel that people would pray and sit with it. This is their theology. This is their thing. We don't go that far, but we can go far enough to say this shouldn't be trivial. Trivial. This is an opportunity for communion with Christ and one another in connection. And so he goes on in verse 28. So everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. Y'all probably heard this, and you've probably thought some kind of way about it. Can I venture to guess that some of you, you, don't have to raise your hand or nod your head, I ended up in a tradition where communion was not done every week. It was done very infrequently, and it was very somber. And then every time we took it, we had to make sure that we had kept a clean slate with God and that we were worthy because we didn't want to be unworthy. Could I just commend to you a thought or two? The first is this. Paul is about to give us a hint at what he means with unworthy. And it's actually not personal. It's corporeal. It's body. Examine yourself and make sure that you aren't trafficking in dishonoring Jesus on the meal by dishonoring your brothers and sisters in your community. So examine yourself so that when you eat and drink from the cup... For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, the church, without thinking of your neighbor and your brother, you drink judgment on yourself. And then he says this shocking thing. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep, which is a euphemism for some of you died because you're messing this up so bad. But if you were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Unworthy is less about are you personally fit or not? I am encouraging you to ask for forgiveness and repent and bear fruit. But what's the threshold of worthy that you're waiting to get to? Because if we really think that theological idea that we've read into this text for the next step and the next step, am I ever going to be worthy? Or do I receive this precisely because I am unworthy and he so freely gives it to me by his grace? So the unworthiness that we are to discern is are we in communion with one another? Are we discerning this place, this space? That's why in other traditions, you pass the peace before you receive communion. Do you know what I'm saying? Pass the peace. The peace of Christ be with you. It was an opportunity to get up because one time we got flipped off literally on 635 on the way to church. And we exited off 635, Amy did. And this old boy followed her to church. And let me tell you how good he felt. And Amy basically said, the peace of Christ be with you. I saw that, brother, but I forgive you. Because it's an opportunity to say, I am a forgiven community of forgiving sinners. I'm coming to a place where I want to remember and be in communion with Christ, and I'm trying to keep my side of the street clear because churches like Corinth could be ones that are riddled with factions and infighting and divisions. They're inhospitable, they're racist, they're classist, and they say, yeah, let's lift the cup in communion. And I think Jesus is sitting there going, whatever you are, you are not a church for the sake of the world. You have missed me, and you're on your own little thing, having a private supper, and you are not honoring What this is. So I think that even as you discern the body, you say, I want to be at attention and remembrance. I want to make sure that as imperfectly as I am, that I'm at peace and I'm grateful to belong to the body of Christ. This is what Paul is teaching. In other words, don't dishonor our host at the family meal by refusing and failing to live. As the family he died to create. In Ephesians he says he's knocked down the walls that divide us of hostility. So he could create one new humanity. What they were doing in Corinth I don't think is what we're doing. But we need to come with humility. Because we're called to be a forgiven family of forgiving sinners. Meeting at the table of communion with Christ. And reunion with one another. That's why we remember it's because of Christ's death that we are united with him. I want to do a fast, quick aside. And I know I've talked for a minute, but I just felt this week that our church is smaller than it's been. COVID has affected so many other churches and so much of our life that I have this sense of, I want to start a new year with a new emphasis on hospitality. And I just wonder how intentional we might be. And would you join me in being intentional with whoever you share a house with or a circle with, with your family and friends, bringing back the practice of hospitality? And I wonder how we might be able to do that as a church family. Isaac was talking at Friendsgiving last night, giving a talk to our community in English and Spanish, and he was talking about how much we need each other. He said, if anything of the last two years has taught us something, is that we need people in our lives. And he used Acts 2, which is that famous passage, that famous portrait of they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread and prayer. And I just wonder if you would take intentional time to be with your kids around a table, to come to a place of attentive remembrance, to see and be seen, to be seen by those in this community. And finally, we'll close with this thought as we come to the table it's a dine and dash encounter. It's a dine and dash encounter in Luke chapter 24. There's two people who are in town for the Passover and they saw the crucifixion of Jesus. And they longed for Jesus to be who he thought he might be, the Messiah. But clearly he didn't because he died. So they left town and they were super distracted and discouraged. And all of a sudden this strange companion comes alongside them. And he says, why are you guys so bummed out? And they said, dude, are you serious? Were you not just in Jerusalem? We thought this guy was going to be the king that we had waited for. We did the Passover thing and we were eating the unleavened bread thinking, man, as we look back to when we were delivered from uh, Pharaoh, I wonder if this is a new delivery with this boy Jesus. But he died and we're on our way back. And the person said, Are you serious? Did you miss it that much? And this strange companion on the road to Emmaus told them throughout scriptures how this person had to suffer, had to be a sacrifice, so that he might bring the reign of God not in triumph and might and violence, but in suffering and love. And then, they get to a fork in the road and they say, Please come and eat with us. And he says, No. And they say, Please. And he goes, Okay. And so they go to a house and Luke writes these words in verse 30 and 31. Luke says, As I find it here, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks broke it, and began to give it to them. Last time he did it was with the disciples at the Last Supper, the Passover remix. And now he becomes the host in the new creation body, the resurrection. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. When did they recognize Jesus, this strange companion along the road? Was it when he was teaching them from the Bible? No, but they said our hearts were burning and we knew this guy was up to something different. When did they recognize Jesus? In the breaking of the bread. That's when they came to a place of cherish, honor, and heart and mind. Communion, then, as we close, is a weekly opportunity for a close encounter to see Jesus, to recognize him like those two travelers did, to see him as the crucified, risen, and returning king. And finally, this may be the only time I quote John Calvin, though he's way smarter and amazing than I am, but I love what he says. I would rather experience it than understand it this is what he said about communion and this is my prayer for us in the next moments that we have together our gracious savior has welcomed us and fed us out of his own gracious and nail scarred hands may you receive anew the grace nourishment and hope that fills all those in Christ Jesus may these things grow in us alongside the gift of faith so that we may plant their seeds in the world around us. May the Holy Spirit guide us in the week ahead to remember our place in God's great and ongoing story of resurrection, redemption, and restoration through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Go in peace.